Amen. What does God expect of us? That's the question that the book, The Whole in Our Gospel, by Richard Stearns, asks. How would you answer that question? What does God expect of you? What does God expect of us? To believe in Christ as Lord? To read the Bible? To come to worship regularly? To pray? To love other people? Is that all? Is that all God expects of us? What does Richard Stearns mean by the whole in our gospel? Well, the premise is quite simple. While being a Christian requires a personal and transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, something we have to have, it also requires a public and transforming relationship with the world around us. You know, sometimes the gospel has been reduced to just what we think in our minds or holding to some set of doctrines. And then it has very little effect on our lives, on how we live with other people. If we are Christians yet not doing the things that Christ said those who know and follow Him do, then there's a hole in our gospel. We live in a world, you and I live in a world where over 26,000 children die every day in this world, every day, from diseases that are largely preventable. We live in a world where one out of every seven people don't have enough food to sustain them. We live in a world where 2.6 billion people live on less than $2 a day, and another billion people live on less than $1 a day. We live in a world where, because of the HIV-AIDS pandemic, there are 15 million orphans in Africa alone, just in Africa. Orphans, children that have nobody. We live in a world where 34 million people are right now homeless or displaced because of war or conflict. A world where children are often forced into human trafficking, where the mortality rate in some countries is in the 30s and the 40s, where there are high rates of illiteracy. How does someone who calls him or herself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ respond in a world like this that we live in? And does God expect anything of us in light of these realities? Yes, the gospel is my sins are forgiven and Christ paid it on the cross, but it is much, much more. For the whole gospel is about my sins being forgiven, being made right with God through faith, but also loving my neighbor, having a life that shows my faith in Christ in tangible actions. The gospel is not just about me and Jesus. It's about me and Jesus and everybody around me. Sometimes evangelical Christians can become so focused on just the personal relationship, just me and Jesus, that we miss that public relationship with the hurting, with the poor and the needy. Richard Stearns is the, past, as the president of World Vision, which is the largest Christian humanitarian organization in the world. Not only that, it is the largest U.S.-based international relief development organization. 
There's a staff of 40,000 people in 100 different countries. They have more staff than CARE, Save the Children, and the United States Agency for International Development combined. World Vision is solidly evangelical, which is to say they do what they do because of the Word of God. And they do that unapologetically wherever they go. They say, we come in the name of Jesus, and we do this because the Scriptures compel us to help and to serve. And we're reading and studying the book, The Whole in Our Gospel, on Sunday mornings and other places here in the sermons, not because we need to feel more guilty about all that we're not doing in the world. I don't know about you, but I already feel like I'm not doing enough half the time. I don't need any more guilt in my life. We're not reading the book, The Whole in Our Gospel, to feel more overwhelmed with the needs that I think we already all feel overwhelmed about. And we're not reading the book to increase uh, compassion fatigue. We're doing this to fill the hole. To find a way where we, where all of MOPC, Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church, can find a way to translate our faith in Christ also into lives of compassion and love in this world that we live in. We're doing this to find out how we can respond in a way that God expects us to live because I think he said something about it. I think he's told us. For a long time, people have um, dichotomized the Christian faith, um, saying, well, you either, you, know, you either have to meet the social needs of the poor and the hurting and take care of that, or you need to save people and, and, and save their souls and get them to heaven. And so conservatives point the finger at more liberal Christians and say, you know what? You're not telling the message of Jesus. All you're doing is feeding people and just meeting needs. And liberals point the finger right back and say, well, all you do is talk about getting to heaven and you ignore the tangible needs that people have. And sadly, historically, that's one of the ways Christians have approached some of the things that maybe don't need to be like that. I mean, does it have to be either or? What if Christians transcended the theological and the political agendas that people throw at us and gave first allegiance to God and the gospel in its fullness. And so that's our first allegiance. There was an op-ed piece in the uh, New York Times by a man named Nicholas Kristof earlier this year. He wrote of how some people, he says some people are pushing to end a long-time practice many, many decades, it goes back, it didn't just start recently, but a long-time practice of uh, channeling American aid through faith-based organizations. And you've heard of some of this, and, and I'm not trying to get political here, but in, in Haiti, more than half of the food that goes to the people there comes through faith-based organizations. Imagine the damage that would be done in that country if that could no longer take place. He goes on to write, he says, you know, there's a root problem of snobbishness toward faith-based organizations. Those doing the sneering typically give away far less money than evangelicals, and they're also less likely to spend vacations volunteering or, say, at a clinic in Rwanda. And he says, if secular liberals can give up some of their snootiness and if evangelicals can retire some of their sanctimony then we all might succeed together in making greater progress against the common enemies we all have, like illiteracy and human trafficking and maternal mortality. You see, in seeking to fill the hole in the gospel, we want to live the whole gospel. 
And the place we have to go is to the Bible. And start with the words of Jesus. And let him set the agenda. One of the things I like about the whole in the gospel when I read it is how much scripture is used and how it pointed me to texts and parts of God's word that I hadn't read in a long time and I needed to hear and think about. So we start in Luke chapter 4 today. And, and Jesus, we read, comes back to his hometown of Galilee where he's from. And it says he comes, did you notice what it said? In the power of the Spirit. Where is he coming back from? He's coming back from 40 days in the wilderness without food, where he was tempted, where he was challenged, where he was beat up by Satan. But he comes back in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes it is when we come out of the greatest spiritual battles in our lives that we are strongest in God's Spirit. Notice how Jesus is rooted in worship and he's rooted in the Word. He's rooted in worship because it is his custom, it says, to go to the synagogue every Sabbath. Jesus doesn't miss this. Now, the temple was in Jerusalem, but every village where there were, uh, every village and city where there were at least 10 Jewish families, you had to have a synagogue there. Synagogues were places for teaching, okay? And in the Sabbath service at a synagogue, it would be three different parts. First of all was the prayer service. Second of all was the reading of the scriptures, which were always translated into Aramaic or Greek because the biblical ancient Hebrew language was no longer the common tongue in Jesus' day. And then the third part of the service was the teaching, the prayers, the reading, and the teaching. And it was the synagogue president's duty to choose someone to give the teaching every week. That is why Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, was able to stand up and read and able to sit down and teach the way he did. Well, Jesus reads the scripture reading for that day, which comes from the book of Isaiah. It's chapter 61. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. Rabbis would sit down when they would teach. I like that a lot better. I think you should stand up, and I think I should sit down. I think it would make me a lot more comfortable. And Jesus begins his teaching by audaciously saying that today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says that what Isaiah was looking toward is fulfilled in him. You see, Jesus is also rooted in the word. He's rooted in the word because it defines his life. Luke chapter 4, what he took from Isaiah 61, that's like his mission statement. Jesus says, this, I'm starting my ministry. This is like my mission statement. The word defines his life. It speaks of his life. It speaks into his life. It applies to him. Jesus was rooted in the worship of God and in the word of God. And if we aren't grounded in those same two things, we will become vulnerable to all kinds of whims, to all kinds of faddish impulses that will set us in all kinds of ways that just move farther and farther apart from God. Is it your custom? Are you rooted in worship week by week? Are you rooted in God's word? Are you interacting with it in your life? What verse or verses speak of your life or define your life? I think it's interesting that Jesus chooses uh, this particular passage to begin his ministry and his mission and speak of it. And he says, points out a number of things. Number one, he says that the spirit of the Lord has, is upon him. 
Now, we often think of the Holy Spirit, do we not, as coming upon someone in a spiritually charismatic way, which means speaking in tongues or prophesying or maybe having gifts of healing or other things, and that is partially true, partially true. Because here, Jesus speaks of the Spirit of the Lord on him. And then he goes on to speak about the good news he has for the poor, the oppressed, the hurting, the brokenhearted. Second, Jesus says, uh, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him. Now, prophets and priests and kings were anointed with oil to show that the empowerment that God gave them for their role. And the prophets spoke of a Messiah, a Christ, which means anointed one, who would come, who God would send to be his sole representative for redemption and salvation. And Jesus is saying that he is God's definitive spokesman. He is the one anointed with the Spirit to be God's Messiah. And Jesus says, the Spirit has anointed me, third, to preach good news. To preach good news. You know what good news means? You know what the word is? Gospel. He says, I came to bring the gospel. Not just a social gospel, not just a salvation gospel, but the whole good news. And what is this gospel? Jesus teaches in that synagogue in Nazareth, in the power of the Holy Spirit to begin his public ministry, Jesus says, this gospel is for the poor. This gospel is for the people in prison. This gospel is for the oppressed. This gospel is for the blind. The Spirit is as much, he says, on the person who's working at that soup kitchen, who's feeding a homeless person, as it is upon the person who is prophesying. And he says, this gospel proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know what that is? The year of the Lord's favor. It's the year of Jubilee. It's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 25. The year of Jubilee came every 50th year. And uh, it was all about restoration. God said all land that had been leased is now to be returned to those who originally owned it. All slaves were to be set free. All debts were to be canceled, no matter what your economic debt, financial debt would be. The point of the year of Jubilee was to say, you know what, the land doesn't belong to people, it belongs to God. And that there's no private property of land or slaves. And it was done to, pre to prevent any kind of ex economic exploitation over certain people. By the way, Leviticus 25, some of those words are inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, in our own nation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus to preach good news, gospel, to the poor. Who are the poor? I think it means economically poor. But I also think it means socially poor. And I think it means emotionally poor. And I think it means spiritually poor. The poor are those who recognize on any level their deep, need, their deep need. You know, the gospel is flourishing amongst the poor and the persecuted in our world. In Southeast Asia, in Africa, in South America, people are just, churches are just booming in those places because those people are so in touch with their needs and their neediness, and they are open to God and His place in their lives. Meanwhile, the gospel is going almost nowhere among the rich and the secure, and that's why it's having so little effect in the United States and in Europe right now. 
But even amidst the wealthy and developed West, it's the people, the people who are grasping the good news of Jesus are those who know their own need. Those who read the Gospels see that the economically rich and the economically poor, the Zacchaeuses and the leper, and the leper respond to Jesus when they understand their deep, deep poverty. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter your social or economic or religious level, wherever you come from, if you know your own neediness, your own poverty of spirit or body or mind, the good news is for you. Yes, it is. And in Luke 4, Jesus speaks about his ministry and that he, what he is all about. He says it's a gospel and it's more than just a personal salvation gospel. It's a gospel for others too, especially the hurting. And if this is Jesus' ministry, it's also the mission of anyone who claimed to follow and belong to him. Jesus' ministry is continued by his church. It's empowered by the same Spirit. There is someone above and beyond and outside of us who comes upon us to empower us to do the work of God. Because Lord knows we can't do it on our own. I would argue that if the church is going to make any difference in feeding hungry people or helping the poor or lifting the oppressed, it will need a charismatic renewal. It will need the very Spirit of God coming upon us to do it. Notice how Jesus speaks of the Spirit. He says, He comes upon me. Sometimes the Scripture speaks about the Spirit being in us, and He is. He does dwell in the believer in Christ. But I just like how Jesus pictures. It's like a cloak. It's like a cloud. It's like a blessing coming down on us, wrapping us, being laid on us so that we have what we need in empowerment to do God's work. But the church... Church hasn't always been about that, has it? Oh, we've often gone to worship and we've read our Bibles and I've prayed, but then done nothing. We've held to the form of faith and religion and then denied the power of it. Have we shrunk Jesus to the size where he can save our soul, but we don't believe he can change the world? Richard Stearns goes to Uganda and he sees a 13-year-old orphan raising his two younger brothers in a hut with no electricity, no running water, and he is stunned by what he's witnessing. He didn't know this type of thing existed. And he asks himself, where's the church? Where have we been? Where have I been? My first call as a pastor was to a small group of four small four churches in the inner city of Philadelphia in the Kensington section. I was there for five years. Kensington's one of the hardest sections of Philadelphia, and I spent a lot of time helping people get food and helping them pay their bills and um, meeting people's needs and coming alongside them. Even (laughs) I had a couple blind people in my congregations, and we prayed for them, and we tried to uphold them. I... uh, one night I had one of these exciting, wonderfully fulfilling denominational Presbyterian meetings that I got to go to at a downtown church. Those of you who know me know how I love those. And uh, I, at that time I wore a clerical collar, which is you know, what a Catholic priest would wear. Um, and uh, I, I wore different colors, though. You know, they have different colors, though. Just kind of set myself off telling people, you know, I'm not Roman Catholic, but yeah, I'm a minister, so anyway, work it out. Um, 
So I looked very religious. You know, I'm looking like a minister. And uh, as I was getting out of my car and walking toward the church, the big downtown church where this was being held, a young woman and her daughter called out to me. Young woman, daughter, maybe three or four years old. And she asked for help with money. She didn't have anything to eat. She said, we have no place to go. And could I help? And I mean, after all, I'm obviously a, a priest or a minister. I'm walking into a church. Maybe I was just tired of meeting people's needs. Maybe it was compassion fatigue. Maybe I had just helped one person too many. Maybe it was my cold-heartedness, but I just kept walking. I ignored her. The woman cried out for more help. I walked faster. And she kept asking for more, and I just continued to ignore her and her daughter. And I never stopped to help her in any way. But I was finally able to get into the doors of the church, safe and protected from her cries and the needs of that poor woman and her child. And I went to the church meeting. And what I did or did not do haunted me. The entire meeting, that night, for weeks, for years to come. You tell me. what I did was right. I mean, how does a preacher of the gospel, Jesus Christ, go to a church meeting and walk right past the very people Jesus Christ came for? When I shared this at 8.30, and now this is the, this is the first time I've confessed uh, this dark moment in my life in front of others. Maybe I have darker moments, but I've asked God's, I've asked God's forgiveness for that moment in my life. And I confess it this morning for myself, but also because much of the church Whatever tradition, whatever church you come from, whatever denomination or non-denomination or expression needs to confess, we have often neglected the ones Jesus came for. We need to confess we've walked by those in need. We need to confess we have often talked about faith but didn't live it. We need to confess that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has hidden behind sometimes the excuse that since we can't Since we uh, can't do everything, we just won't do anything. We have to confess that we have favored our comfort more than entering into the pain and the disorder and the inconvenience of others. We have to confess that we have rationalized our lack of compassion and concern 
for justice and that we've all walked right past that woman and her daughter. And the first thing we have to do before the Spirit of the Lord can anoint us for preaching and living the gospel is we have to confess that we've put a hole in it. Jesus 